0: hello everyone and welcome to scream scene the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst my name's ben
1: and i'm sarah
0: thank you for joining us today how are you doing today, Sarah?
1: It's Valentine's Day. Well, it's it's Valentine's
0: Eve as we're recording this.
1: Okay. Okay, Mr. Check the I's and dot the T's.
0: I'm a pedant. What yes. can I say?
1: We did just have a Valentine's Day dinner. Yes. And I am a glass of wine deep.
0: Yes, I'm on number two.
1: So, full disclosure.
0: Sarah made a wonderful seafood meal out of her recipes from the world of Tolkien book
1: yes these are the gray haven garlicky mussels yes uh pretty good
0: yeah they turned out great
1: do you want to know why this is also exciting for today
0: why is that Sarah
1: we have a new patron that's right thank you Raphael Moreau the latest patron of the night dope name dope name
0: raphael's a good name we got
1: teenage mutant ninja turtles we got a mad scientist all around great welcome raphael
0: well thank you raphael if you would like to be like raphael and be cool like raphael you can head over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month
1: what are we watching this week ben
0: well, this week, Sarah, for our Valentine's Day episode, we have a special tale of love and devotion between a <laughs> wife and husband. <laughs> it's the Fly from 1958, <laughs> directed by Kurt Newman. Amazing. So this is this is a big deal movie.
1: Yeah, so I haven't seen this one. I've only seen the Jeff Goldblum one. Hmm. And you did give me the heads up that this is not as sexy.
0: No, no. Um, I saw this one first. Okay. I saw like this fly as like a kid and I saw the Goldblum one. I think I saw bits and pieces of it on TV a bunch as a kid. The Jeff Goldblum one is like very disturbing, Mm -hmm. but I found this movie like maybe not scary per se as a kid, but I definitely found it disturbing. I found this to be a highly disturbing movie um, when I was a kid. It's still very effective.
1: Yeah. The Jeff Goldblum fly has the body horror, and I think it has a visceral amount of like what I'll call gore related to the body horror. Yeah,
0: excellent makeup jobs.
1: Yeah. Um, I know that this film, I've seen what the fly looks like in this film, and um, it's not as uh, wet. <laughs>
0: It's, it's much more of like a fly because like in the Cronenberg version, it's more of like a man fly hybrid Mm -hmm. thing. And this is more of a like sort of comic book character kind of like straight up parts of the animal are on your body kind of thing. But it's still really gross because I think one of the things that made this movie very visceral and... A movie that people had strong reactions to in the 1950s is flies are gross
1: yeah i hate flies i am like a germaphobe ish and the idea of a fly like touching me when i know that that fly probably landed on poop
0: probably was born in poop
1: yeah just like Raised i want to wash
0: <laughs> molded by
1: it <laughs> I just want to, like, wash my entire arm if mm. they touch me.
0: Mm. Yeah, flies are gross. So, although I'm pretty sure, like, a lot of people are familiar with the 1986 remake, and I'm sure that, like, even a lot of people are familiar with the fact that, like, that's a remake, and there's this 1958 original. Um, people are probably, like, less familiar with the fact that this has a literary source. mm mm-hmm.
1: Yes, the fly short story comes to us by a man named George Langelin. He was born January 19th in 1908, Paris, to British parents, so he has dual citizenship, and he would speak both languages fluently, but be writing in French. Interesting. After he finished school, he began working as a journalist and a correspondent, At the outbreak of World War II, he began working for the British Army Intelligence on the continent. After making his way back from behind enemy lines, um, ultimately being rescued at Dunkirk, um, he was then recruited for the Special Operations Executive as a spy.
0: Oh, so he's James Bond is what you're telling me. Well, listen. Listen to this tale. World War II Army Intelligence SOE? Yeah. Yeah.
1: The plan was that he was to be flown back into Nazi-occupied France to ultimately assist with the French resistance. The only problem were his ears. Oh? He, um, has very distinctive large ears. Okay. Like, bigger and more, like, flappable than Will Smith. I see. And there were fears that his distinctive appearance with these ears would blow his cover because he's been in France before. Okay. So he underwent plastic surgery to have them pinned back. Post-surgery, he was deployed to France under the codename Touche. Okay. In uh, September 7th, 1941. There, about one month after being deployed, he was captured and sentenced to death by the Nazis and sent to Camp Mausach. He was in the camp around eight months before he managed to have a daring escape and made it back to England, ultimately being able to recover and participate in D-Day. My God. Now, during World War II, you know, you make friends with other, like, Spy people Uh and stuff like that. Um, He happened to befriend Alistair Crowley during World War II. And later he would claim that Crowley was a spy and would be leveraging his ties to Germany's inner circle. Yeah. (laughs) After World War II, Langelin would return to journalism and began expanding his repertoire, first with kind of a memoir-esque kind of story titled um, One Named Langdon, uh, Memories of a Secret Agent, which was published in 1950. And then he would eventually transition fully into fiction by the end of the 50s, um, beginning with The Fly in 1957.
0: Huh. I didn't know it was like his first like fiction thing.
1: Yeah. It was published in the June issue of Playboy. Yeah. So you know, another reason to be like, no, I read it for the
0: articles. Yeah, Um Hugh Hefner was like a big sci-fi buff and like published a lot of sci-fi in Playboy.
1: <laughs> Langland would have many other short stories. Um He would have a like full memoir titled The Masks of War published later on. And he would publish regularly throughout the 60s up until his death on February 9th, 1972 at the age of 64. Hmm.
0: Wow. I didn't know any of that stuff. That's pretty incredible.
1: Yep. (laughs) In total, Langland wrote nearly 30 short stories, two works of memoir, nonfiction pieces, um, and, uh, many, um, collections, uh, collecting his work, um, The Fly, like I said, was originally written in French, as was most of his work. Uh, So it was originally titled La Mouche. Okay. Which I think is very interesting because um, that means that in French, uh, Fly is gendered female with Mm. the law, but um, the character who gets turned into a Fly-ish, spoilers, um, is a guy. So I'm surprised that he kept with the la for, like, la mouche.
0: Yeah, but, like, isn't the deal in French just that, like, shit gets gendered one way or the other and it doesn't matter what the truth is?
1: Yes, but because, like, I guess it means that he's talking about a general fly, not, like, the specific fly. Yeah, okay.
0: Hmm. The other thing, too, is um, a big difference between this version of the story and say like the Jeff Goldblum one is that like the fly who's involved in the transformation retains importance in the story after the accident. Yes. So the title might be referring to that fly as opposed to our lead character. Fair enough. Maybe she's a woman I don't know.
1: This short story was noted for its being both compelling science fiction and horror like I said, it was first published in Playboy, and it earned the magazine's Best Fiction Award at the end of the year. It was also included in um, the year's greatest sci-fi and fantasy collection of uh, 1957. So, the plot. Okay. Um, it follows a man named Francois, and he has woken up in the middle of the night from a call from his sister-in-law, Eline. Um, And she says, I've killed my husband, your brother, André, and I need you to call the police. So Francois calls the police and he heads over and they find his brother, André, under a hydraulic press in the basement. Now, Helene won't say what her motive was, but she does fully admit to the crime. So she's sent to an asylum while custody of her son, Henri, is given to Francois. As Francois is taking care of Henri and trying to, you know, help Ellen in some sort of way, Ellen uh, once asks, like, how, does, how long does a fly live? And then Henri also becomes, like, enamored with, like, this fly with a white head and just is like, you don't see that every day. Gee willikers, I'm Henri. <laughs> and so Francois is like, hey, do you know anything about this fly thing? And Ellen gets really upset about this and so ultimately Francois confronts Helene with these fly things like what is going on here um why do you have such a fascination with flies and what you know how does this relate to Andre's death and she says okay I will tell you everything I've all read it out in a manuscript and so she does gives it to him and he goes home and reads it that night According to the manuscript, um, Andre is a scientist, and he has been devising a disintegrator, reintegrator to transfer matter. Kind of think of it as a transporter from Star Trek. Yeah. He does a couple of tests on inanimate objects, such as an ashtray, and when it reappears, it's perfectly fine, except the label made in Japan is backwards. Um, He also... (laughs) This is unforgivable. He also um, puts the family cat in and it just disappears. Mm -hmm. It's gone for good. Mm -hmm. Next, he moves on to human trials and Andre himself goes through. Um, But a fly happens to come along for the ride. And when Andre comes out, he has a fly head and arm. Um, And they begin to see a fly around the house that has like a white head with the idea that, you know, André's head and arm are on the fly. So they do try to catch the fly to basically go through the machine again, and André would be able to regain his missing atoms, but it's futile. They just can't find the fly. They can't catch it. So Helene is, you know, in despair about her husband being this fly monster, and she's like, no, just go through the thing again, and maybe it'll all sort itself out. So André... Goes through, and when he reemerges, it's even worse because the cat atoms are now mixed in. So, with no hope of rearranging his atoms in the correct way, Andre arranges to die on the hydraulic press, instructs Helene on how to work it to kill him. Now, Helene is um, very religious, and she is very distraught about having to kill her husband, about what has happened to her husband. Um, And the story does really focus on her despair, and I use that word specifically because of that loss of religion for her. The next day when Francois goes to see Helen to be like, hey, I read your manuscript, what the fuck? Is this really true? He discovers that she's killed herself in the asylum using a cyanide pill. Francois goes to the police, Inspector Kairos, Um, who was kind of involved from the beginning to say like here's what she's told me and here's her manuscript and the inspector goes well I think she must have been mad like there's no other explanation here and Francois shares that like well earlier today I did kill a fly with a white head and I buried it at the grave of my brother and that's the end. So that short story was published in 57. The following year, we have this adaptation, and it must have been successful because in 1959, we get a sequel, The Return of the Fly. And that must have been, like, okay successful, because 1965, we get the final film in this trilogy, uh, Curse of the Fly. Then, as we've mentioned, there is the remake in 1986 with Jeff Goldblum that gets a sequel in 1989, The Fly 2. And then the other adaptation of this short story, Ben, is a 2008 opera adapting specifically the 86 film. And this opera is done by Howard Shore.
0: Yes, who you may know is the guy who... Did Lord ran, of the Rings. I was going to say ran SNL's band in its first season, but okay. Yeah, Lord of the Rings. No, more significantly, he did the music to the 1986 version. Oh, okay. Which is hence the connection.
1: Sure, sure. I was just like, Lord of the Rings guy? What yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> now, um, like I said, this short story, it follows Francois, but it does really focus on Helene's despair about her husband um and there's a moment where she even like despairs over what has happened and that she hopes that like there is no afterlife because of like what she's done and what's happened to her husband Mm -hmm. she just doesn't want to know the knowledge of this is something that's possible to put a a fly head on a human man Mm -hmm. i also want to point out that kafka's The Metamorphosis was published in 1915, and that's obviously a bit of an influence. And I think a lot of the critical reception of the short story talked about the way that it is dealing with masculinity and feeling insignificant. Mm. And that really surprised me because those descriptions of, of themes seem to be more akin to The Incredible Shrinking Man, right. which may be an influence here, but I don't think that's really what Langland is doing here. But um, I just want to point out that The Incredible Shrinking Man novel from Richard Matheson came out in 1956, and the film came out in 1957 from Jack Arnold, yeah. and we talk about it in episode 201. Um, so very likely that if they aren't influences on Langlin, they're definitely in the mind of people watching because it's a similar genre.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Especially with the like focus on like the wife having to deal with this strange thing that's happening to her husband. Yeah. Yeah. The 86 version is very, very good, but like it basically takes the central premise of like scientists developing a matter transporter gets fused with a fly and then like the rest of it is very different.
1: Yeah, like it's a good movie, but mm-hmm. it's um, not as accurate to the short story as it could be.
0: So um, it was Kurt Newman who discovered Langolin's short story in Playboy uh, and decided it would make a great movie. Newman's life is really difficult to research. Mm-hmm. Um, I could find very few details. Uh, What details I could find differed from source to source to source. (laughs) Um, There were people who wrote about his life sort of constructing a narrative with it that they used to like interpret things in it, but then I would find no evidence of that narrative in other accounts of his life. Um, So I don't trust a lot of the information I have about him.
1: Is he uh, a bit of a Don Draper? I don't know. (laughs)
0: um but i think it's certainly an element of the way that for one thing he was an immigrant and immigrants to america back in the early 20th century often had a very like that was my before life this is my new life kind of attitude and then he also um died fairly young ish Mm -hmm. and that means that like there isn't a lot of like opportunity for like interviews with him Um, like most attention on him as a director came after he died. So I think it's just a situation where we don't have a lot of information and we might never have a lot of information, but I'll give you what I got. So he was born in Nuremberg in Germany in either 1898 or 1908, depending on who you ask. His headstone says 1898 Um, But everything else online says 1908. He came to America during the early 1930s to direct German language versions of Hollywood films when that was still the style uh, for handling international releases. I have no idea what he did before that. (laughs) Um, after he directed a few of these, and he became more proficient with English, and you know, demonstrated that he was a good filmmaker, he started getting you know assigned English language films, um, basically all B movies. I ran into a number of accounts in various places that he was originally going to direct *Bride of Frankenstein*, and that um, he was pulled off of *Bride of Frankenstein* when James Whale's *Invisible Man* was a huge success. And so Universal had Whale direct Bride of Frankenstein. But on the other hand, I didn't learn that when I was doing research for Bride of Frankenstein way back when. And the reason Whale directed Bride of Frankenstein was he directed Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, So it's like a bit of a weird thing. I saw it suggested that Newman not being able to get that job uh, sort of like damaged his career and was what like kind of stuck him with kind of low budget movies. But I'm not really sure about that either. I also saw sources that said that he was going to direct Black Cat and then didn't. And instead, Edgar G. Elmer did. Except that like our research on Black Cat suggested that Edgar G. Elmer was like instrumental in sort of the creation of that film from Jump Street.
1: Like the driving force of it.
0: Yeah. And I could find no explanations in that case about why he was pulled off the film if he was going to direct that at one point. I also saw sources that say he was supposed to direct The Raven in 1935 with Karloff and Lugosi and then didn't, although I could find no information about, again, why he didn't. That film was ultimately directed by Lou Landers. There was this suggestion that, like, he could have been this, like, force helming the Universal horror movies, and, like, that would have been way better for his career if that had happened for him and his career kind of suffered because he didn't get these chances. But, like, looking at the careers of, like, James Whale and Edgar G. Elmer and Lou Landers after those movies, like, it's not like those movies shot them up into the stratosphere of a-picture directors. So I'm really not sure about any of that and whether any of that is true or mm-hmm. whether it's, like, mythologizing him after the fact. Um, what I do know... Is that after doing some B movies for a while, he was approached by producer Hal Roach, famous for the Our Gang comedies, um, to do what Hal Roach called streamliners, which was basically four real comedies, uh, longer than most shorts, but shorter than most features that were designed to like fill out double bills that weren't long enough. Um, And he did a number of those comedies for many, many years through the 1940s. In 1945, he took over the directing duties for RKO's Tarzan series starring Johnny Weissmuller. He directed the ninth, 10th, and 11th outings in that series. Um, The 12th film was Weissmuller's final film as Tarzan. And then Newman returned to the series years later in 1953 to direct Tarzan and the She-Devil, which was the fifth and final Tarzan film starring Lex Barker. However, for the purposes of our episode today, the first big movie from Kurt Newman is 1950s rocket ship XM, which was producer Robert Lippert's uh, quick, cheap, cash-in movie on Destination Moon. Rocketship XM was a huge hit due to the way that it piggybacked on Destination Moon's publicity. Reportedly... Newman was an avid reader of science fiction and really enjoyed the genre and felt like no shame about directing in the genre and didn't feel like he was slumming it when he worked in that genre. But I don't know if that's true. Newman would continue to work with Lippert, however, throughout the 1950s, um, initially for Lippert Pictures. And then when Lippert Pictures fell apart, because Robert Lippert was the first movie producer to sell his library to tv and didn't give the actors in his library any tv residuals um leopard pictures collapsed and instead uh, it became folded into 20th century fox as a specialty label called regal films uh, whose purpose was to produce b pictures in regal scope uh, because fox had a rule that only a pictures could be in their cinema scope widescreen process But it's very difficult to pair a cinemascope film with a non-scope B-picture, especially for projectionists. So to get around their own rule, Lippert produced films as Regal Films in Regal Scope to serve as these B-pictures, and Newman followed Lippert from Lippert Pictures to Regal Films. In 1957, Newman directed two genre pictures under this arrangement, uh, She-Devil and Kronos. We watched She-Devil in episode 208 and as I recall, we had some pretty significant problems with that movie. Yes. And ultimately, we decided it was not horror. Kronos, we didn't even watch. It's a sci-fi monster movie that is praised in some corners for its originality and its writing and derided in other corners for its performances and its ending with its special effects being praised or put down Completely dependent on critic. <laughs> Ain't that just the way. Mm. So yeah, so it was Newman who brought Langolin's story to Lippert, uh, basically saying like, hey, this can be our next sci-fi project for Regal. Lippert agreed, and he hired a new screenwriter named James Clavel on the strength of a spec script that Clavel had written. Clavel was born in 1921 in Sydney, Australia. He was the son of a Royal Navy officer who happened to be stationed there. In World War II, Clavel joined the Royal Artillery and was sent to Singapore to fight the Japanese. His ship was sunk on the way over, and the officers and men were rescued by a Dutch trading ship that was fleeing to India. Clavel's commander insisted that the captain of the Dutch trading ship take them to Singapore so they could fight the war. uh, Even though they had lost all of their weapons in the sinking of the troop transport ship. So the captain did that and they went to Singapore and they started fighting the Japanese and Clavel was shot in the face. In um, the face? In the face. And he uh, survived and ended up a prisoner of war in Singapore, a uh, prisoner of the Japanese. The prisoners uh, were extremely poorly fed, very malnutritioned, and Clavel came to believe that if the atomic bomb had not been dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki when it was, that he probably would have died in that prison because he had like not much longer to go when they were all released because the war was over. For years after this experience, uh, he would always keep a can of sardines in his pocket, and he often had to fight the urge to forage for food in trash cans when he passed them. Now, Clavel ended the war a captain and attended the University of Birmingham in Great Britain. And there he met an actress named April Stride, who he married. He began visiting her on her film sets and became very interested in the movie business. He initially joined the industry through like distribution work, um, but he wanted to like make his own films. He found that becoming a producer out of nowhere was very difficult, which vibes. (laughs) Um, And so he started writing his own screenplays and trying to sell those in 1954. He moved to New York and then to Hollywood uh, paying the bills While trying to get his script sold by working as a carpenter. In 1956, he sold a script about pilots called Far Alert to RKO. RKO ended up selling the script because they were in desperate need of some quick cash in the late 50s, and the script kind of like bounced around various studios around Hollywood. It kept getting like sold and bought, and each time it was sold and bought, you know, Clavel made a little bit of money off of it again um because that's how that works so for like a year he just lived on this script getting sold and bought multiple times uh it was never actually made but at one point it ended up at fox and lippert saw it and that's how he knew of clavel and his talent so he hired clavel on to adapt the fly clavel's first draft stuck really close to the original short story um its biggest change was moving the action from France to Quebec so that the characters could all keep their names but speak in English cuz that's how Canada works, right? I I'm pretty sure. But uh Fox executives wanted a happier ending.
1: Yeah, it it's pretty dark.
0: So, uh Clavel did away with Helene's suicide.
1: Okay. That's rest- still pretty dark.
0: Yes, it is a disturbing movie. Nevertheless, Lippert said of Clavel's script that it was the best first draft he had ever seen. Lippert originally wanted Michael Rennie, who had played Clatou in The Day the Earth Stood Still, to play Andre Delambre, but Rennie turned the movie down when he realized his face would be covered up for most of it. <laughs> Sure. The role bounced around a couple of other young Fox actors before eventually going to 29-year-old actor Al Hedison, later known as David Hedison.
1: Not Vincent Price?
0: Vincent Price does not play Andre. He plays Francois. I thought he was the fly. No. Although I will admit that the first time I saw this movie as a kid, I was expecting that Vincent Price would be the main character as well. So that was a disappointment to me. At that time. Oh. Um,
1: <laughs> I just wanted to see a fly head speaking with Vincent Price's voice. Ah,
0: you see, he cannot speak once he gets the fly head, and perhaps that is part of why Vincent uh. Price does not play the fly. It's not the only reason, I'll get into that. So, Albert David Hedison Jr. was born in 1927 in Providence, Rhode Island, and he wanted to be an actor ever since he saw Tyrone Power in Blood and Sand when he was 14 mood he he studied acting in new york and eventually began appearing on stage with his breakout role being a broadway production of a month in the country in 1956 he was considered one of the most promising young actors at the time and he was signed to fox in 1957 he appeared in the war movie the enemy below very famous film and the fly was his second movie oh wow Edison was extremely enthusiastic about the role. He thought the script was great. Uh, he really loved its believability. He thought that, like, the science part of the science fiction was, like, way more plausible than most films of this type, that, like, the matter-energy transporter thing made a lot of sense. And he even made the suggestion that instead of it being just, like, a straight swap of the fly's head and arm with his that his character could have like a gradual transformation where he comes out human initially and then like slowly morphs becoming more and more fly like over time. Um, But the studio rejected this for two reasons. One way too expensive on the makeup department and two uh, far too horrific. Um, And the studio kind of already had concerns about the movie being sort of beyond the realm of good taste as it was.
1: Sure. If you do want to see that kind of take, though, that would be in the 86 film.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So Hedison finally got to have his like version of the story sort of um, realized in that remake. Speaking of the makeup for The Fly, it is created by the studio's in-house special makeup artist, Ben Nye, who worked on over 400 movies for 20th Century Fox from 1935 to 1982. Wow. He was just their makeup guy. Uh, And when he retired, he formed the Ben Nye company, which if you go buy like makeup, makeup, especially at like, like Halloween stores and stuff, like that's the label you're going to see. Yeah. Uh, All your fake blood and stuff. Yeah. Now Hedison was dissatisfied with the makeup um, because it didn't match his like suggestion. And also because the head weighed 20 pounds. Whoa. Um, But Ben Nye felt it was basically the best thing he ever did. Um, Nye is credited for makeup on Planet of the Apes, which came much later. Um, but he was actually not the guy who did the apes makeup for that movie. That was John Chambers. He did the special makeup. Nye was credited because he was just like 20th Century Fox's general makeup guy, so like all the normal makeup on that movie he did. Um, just to point that out there and to stave off anyone being like, "Well, didn't he do Planet of the Apes?" Uh, no. But he did do this film uh, the makeup was very sort of complicated. It features like a moving proboscis. Um, What's a proboscis? Um, that's like the little tube that comes off of Fly's face oh, yeah. that it uses to eat things. Okay. Yeah, yeah. it's a little straw. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, now, Hedison could have delegated all the scenes with the makeup on to a stunt performer, uh, but he did not. Uh, he was really enthusiastic about the part and insisted on doing all of the scenes himself. As shooting was set to begin, Lippert found himself once again embroiled in a dispute with the Screen Actors Guild over paying residuals to actors. To avoid any trouble, uh, Fox turned the production of The Fly over to Newman and brought the film in-house as a full 20th Century Fox production, shot in Cinemascope with Color by Deluxe and to be released as an A-picture.
1: Color? Yeah. A picture? Yeah. I didn't know that.
0: Regal Films would instead handle the B picture to the fly, Space Master X7. (laughs) With a budget of $480,000, the film was shot in 18 days by cinematographer Carl Struss, the man who developed the soft focus lens in 1909, one of the great cinematographers ever since the dawn of the film industry. He was a four-time Oscar nominee, one-time winner, and he had shot films like Ben-Hur in 1925, Sunrise in 1927, for which he won the Oscar, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1931, The Sign of the Cross in 1932, Island of Lost Souls in 1932, The Story of Temple Drake in 1933, The Great Dictator in 1940, Journey into Fear in 1943, also... Rocket Ship XM in 1950, The Return of Jesse James in 1950, Limelight in 52, Mace of Lost Women in 53.
1: You know, we all have some duds.
0: <laughs> uh, as well as She-Devil and Kronos in 57. So he had that prior working relationship with Lippert and Regal Films. He would have been 72 years old at this point. Wow. Carrying the film in the role of Helene is actress Patricia Owens. She was born in Golden, British Columbia, in 1925.
1: Oh shit, shit, a Canadian, Ben! It's in our contract as Canadians that we (laughs) sign when we are birthed.
0: Right, to always make a big deal of a Canadian. Yes. So she moved to England with her family at age 8. She began acting in films at age 18 in 1943. As she continued her career on film and on stage, she came to the attention of 20th Century Fox and was offered a contract and brought over to Hollywood in 1957. Uh, She appeared in a number of films by this point, but The Fly would be like her biggest role. Now, Fox's marketing campaign for The Fly was highly secretive. Um, It was reliant on keeping the monster and its appearance completely concealed until audiences saw it in the movie. When you look at the poster, the fly ain't on the poster. You watch the trailer, the fly ain't in the trailer. Uh, Al Hedison and Patricia Owens were both like relatively new actors who didn't have the star power to sell the movie on its own. And the studio was selling the movie on mystery so they couldn't sell it on like, ooh, look at the monster. Mm -hmm. So it was decided that they kind of needed like someone to anchor the cast. And so Vincent Price was cast as Francois. Okay. So he was basically brought in for his name, um, on this picture. Uh, he narrates the film's famous trailer and he was sort of the focus of a lot of the marketing in addition to just the image of Patricia Owens screaming. We last saw Vincent Price in the mad magician back in 1954. He has had a number of roles since then, including a small role in the 1956 version of The Ten Commandments. The Fly would represent a turning point in his career. Before this, he has been a character actor who often appears in horror movies. After this, he is a horror actor, 100% all the time. Okay, Uh, Vincent Price loved this movie. He thought it was fantastic, lots of fun to make, and he always sort of like spoke very, very kindly of it in years afterwards. The cast is rounded out by a number of character actors. Uh, We have Herbert Marshall, who plays the inspector. He is a British actor with a career going back to 1911. And he was originally like a romantic lead matinee idol type um, who eventually transitioned to character acting. During World War II, he worked to support and aid and rehabilitate amputees uh, because he had lost his leg in World War I. Uh, he was a frequent name in the gossip columns uh, over the years due to his five marriages and his longtime affair with Gloria Swanson. <laughs> oh, no. Comedic actor Catherine Freeman also appears in this film. Uh, She had been active since 1948, but often in like very small, uncredited parts. Uh, She was 35 years old at the time of this movie, but she would go on to have a very long career, primarily as a supporting comedic actress. For example, she appeared in films like The Nutty Professor in 1963 and as The Penguin in Blues Brothers in 1980. Uh, she also appeared in Gremlins 2 in 1990 and just a ton of television roles. She passed away in 2001, survived by her partner, Helen Ramsey. Betty Lou Garson appears as a nurse in this film, but she achieved immortality as the voice of Cruella Deville in 101 Dalmatians in 1961. <laughs> And then finally, we have a uh, 10-year-old actor, Charles Herbert Saperstein, playing uh, the role of Philippe, uh, Andre's son. Uh, he had been supporting his family as an actor since he was five. He was one of the most demanded child actors of his day. Uh, he was known as One Take Charlie, and he was praised for his like mature acting style that was thought to be compatible with the method acting styles that were starting to become popular in the 50s. Um, he was considered to have like a very intelligent adult, like broody witty kind of style for a you know, child actor. Now upon reaching his teen years, um, the roles fell away as they often do for child actors. And when he turned 21, he discovered that his parents had not saved like any of the money that he had made. They had spent it all. Uh, so there was nothing left for him. Mm. He fell into depression and drug abuse and he did not reemerge until 2004 when he got sober and began speaking out about the problems of former child performers. He passed away in 2015. The Fly premiered on July 16th, 1958. It would become one of Fox's biggest hits of the year, grossing $4.7 million worldwide. Wow. The film was also critically acclaimed, for the most part, with praise for its believability, its tension and mystery, its execution of its concept, though its central premise and the imagery surrounding some of its key moments, like a man turned into a fly and then being killed in a hydraulic press by his wife, were praised by some and considered <laughs> revolting and in poor taste by others. Uh, one review remarked that the reviewer couldn't even like laugh at the absurdity of these moments, which is how they enjoyed most other horror pictures. But, you know, if those moments are upsetting and revolting and disturbing, that's kind of the point. It's a horror movie. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, Kurt Newman would not live to see the success of this film, which would become his most successful film. Uh, He had a number of other films released posthumously, um, but he would not live to see them because he passed away. Um, And how and when and why... I have a bunch of different versions of that story. Okay. Um, So it was probably on August 21st, 1958, a few weeks, uh, basically a month after the premiere of the film. He would have been aged 50 or 60, depending on when you think he was born. And according to newspapers at the time, he passed away of mysterious circumstances. Is that code for something? I don't know. (laughs) Um, What I can also tell you is that according to another source I saw, he died a month before the premiere, or also maybe he died of natural causes, or uh, it might have been a work-induced heart attack two weeks after the premiere, or he passed away nine days before the film's premiere or he committed suicide after the first screening of the film driven to take his own life by the film's poignant parallels to his own mistakes and failed dreams and his feelings of helplessness as a small cog in the overall Hollywood machine. That seems the least likely. Yeah, Probably not that one. Um, My vote is he passed away on August 21st, 1958, a month after the premiere, but before the film had really made all of its money of a work induced heart attack.
1: Yeah, cuz it sounds like he was just pumping stuff out, yes. working very hard. Yeah. It sounds a little bit like um absolutely a work-related issue.
0: But who knows? Newman knows. Well, he's not telling anyone. <laughs> After the film's success, Lippert asked James Clavell to write and direct Five Gates to Hell for him in 1959. When the Writers Guild went on strike in 1960, Clavel wrote the novel King Rat, based on his time as a Japanese POW. Uh, It was the first time he had ever talked to anyone about any of his experiences, including his wife. The novel was a huge hit when it was published in 1962, and it became a film in 1965. In 1963, Clavel wrote the film The Great Escape, and his second novel, Tai Pan, uh, was published in 1966 it became a movie in 1986 and it was set in hong kong in 1842 uh, about like foreign traders coming to hong kong for the first time in 1975 he published his most successful novel shogun about an english sailor who washes ashore in japan in the year 1600 And that novel was adapted to an acclaimed miniseries in 1980 that ignited the American interest in feudal Japan, Uh, samurai, ninjas. If you ever wanted to know why there were so many ninjas in the 1980s, it's because of Shogun, the miniseries.
1: Thanks, Shogun.
0: His fourth novel, Noble House, was published in 1981. It's set in Hong Kong in 1963, and it was turned into a miniseries in 1986. In 1986, he wrote Whirlwind, set in Iran in 1979, and that was not adapted into another medium for some reason. In 1993, he published Gaijin, uh, set in Japan in 1862, and that was also set to become a miniseries in 1995, but filming was abandoned uh, after a week. Uh, following an earthquake in Japan that destroyed the sets. And at that point it was decided that like too much money had been put into this thing um, for it to work. And they pulled out. Clavel passed away in 1994.
1: Wow. I thought his name was familiar.
0: Yeah. Big deal guy. Following the fly, Al Hedison had his name changed to David Hedison by NBC Uh, in order to star in their series Five Fingers in 1959. In 1960, he starred in Irwin Allen's version of The Lost World, and from 1964 to 1968, he was the co-lead of Allen's TV series Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Before Jeffrey Wright, Hedison had the distinction of being the only actor to play Felix Leiter twice (laughs) in 1973's Live and Let Die and 1989's License to Kill. His daughter, Alexandra Hedison, is the wife of Jody Foster. He passed away in 2019 at age 92. Patricia Owens continued to act for some time after The Fly, but she never achieved the same level of success um, or parts of the same size ever again. The Fly has been released to home video. Many times, Mm -hmm. including to Blu-ray many times. Uh, We are watching the Scream Factory Blu-ray from their Fly collection, which includes this film's two sequels, the 1986 remake and that remake's sequel. The Fly is also available to rent on iTunes, Microsoft, Google Play and YouTube.
1: Lots of places to find this movie. Um, So, hopefully, folks, you can find a copy to watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Fly from 1958, directed by Kurt Newman.
0: See you on the other side, everybody.
1: Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Fly from 1958, directed by Kurt Newman. Um, ben, you've seen this before. Yes. Did it still have the same impact on you?
0: Yeah, um, I think this movie held up. Uh, I find this movie to be really upsetting um, in like, you know... A horror movie way? Like a good way because it's a horror movie. Yeah, exactly. But I think as like a husband and an adult... I actually find it more upsetting now than I did as a kid because the things that are upsetting about it, like I could sort of like intellectually understand as a kid were upsetting, but I have a much more like emotional connection to now. Sure. Um, Like I started like crying like halfway through this movie when we were watching it this time. Um, I got really upset. And the remake has a lot more like, viscerally upsetting stuff in terms of the body horror. But um, the thing about the remake is like once the bad stuff starts, like once the snowball starts rolling down the hill, that's kind of it. Like it's just going and you're just sort of trapped with it. Like watching things get worse in this movie, there's like a potential way out and it's just that it's like extremely fickle because you have to do something that's like very, very difficult and could just completely slip through your fingers due to like chance. And that makes like all of the bad things when they happen, like much more crushing for me.
1: Sure. I think you are getting ahead of us though into the discussion.
0: (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. I'm sorry.
1: No, that's okay. Uh, I'm not going to wag my finger at you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What did you think of it being that this was your first time?
1: So yes, my very first time seeing this movie, um, but of course I have seen the like Treehouse of Horror parody, um, and you know I live in this society, so sure. I've seen it parodied. But um, I thought it was really good. I was really impressed with David Hedison's physical acting as the Fly. Um, I think he really got it was more powerful than I was expecting, mm. um, and. I really liked the fly makeup, mm. like the big head. I thought
0: you'd find it cool.
1: Yeah, I really liked it and I was really jiving with it and so I wasn't really expecting the end with the the man fly mm. in the web right. to be so fucked up. <laughs> it's a fucked up scene. Yeah. And I am just very lucky that the spider that they use is very goofy Muppet looking. Right. Because it was already a lot for me.
0: Yeah, with um, your arachnophobia.
1: Yeah. And then, yeah, just the way that they handled it. Um, the the goofy looking spider allowed me to actually handle the scene. Sure. In a strange way. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, it's like probably the most famous scene in the movie. Yeah. But let's... Well, maybe
1: two... second. I'm thinking of the compound eyes, oh, but yes, yeah. We are getting ahead of ourselves. This is why I was like, I'm not going to wag my finger at you.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about plot.
1: Yeah. Okay. So the plot of the film is pretty much the same as the short story with some changes, um, but I'll still go through everything. So we are set in Montreal at the Delambre Electronics Company. Right. Owned jointly by Andre and Francois Delambre.
0: They have kind of like a Walt and Roy Disney thing going on. Like one of them is the electronics genius and the other one is the businessman.
1: Yes. Yeah. And when we open, um, Andre Delambre has been found dead and his wife, Eline is the main suspect. As Francois brings in his acquaintance, Inspector Sheriff's, uh, to investigate, um, Helene is basically being treated as if she's mad and she's leaning into it, but she does kind of act strangely around flies whenever there's a fly in the room. Um, it draws all of her attention. And then of course her son Philippe asks occasionally like, what is the lifespan of flies? Um, mom had me chasing after a white headed fly. So all this, you know, strangeness about flies prompts Francois to, Talk with Helene about flies. And he basically lies to her, saying that, you know, I've caught the white fly, the white headed fly in my desk, so you can tell me the full story. And she goes, okay, well, bring in Inspector Sheris because I'm not explaining this twice. (laughs) (laughs) Both the inspector and Francois are in the room. We also, I feel like this is just good to say, you know, Sheris does do police work and does check to see if Francois would be a suspect. And it's revealed that Francois is actually in love with Eileen, um, But he stepped back because she was clearly in love with his brother.
0: Yeah, like the early parts of the movie are structured as like a murder mystery story.
1: Exactly. Until we get to the flashback. In the flashback, we see Ellen and André being, like, the perfect couple. Philippe is the perfect son. It's a loving family, um, and it's just, like, the perfect life. Um, André has um, his basement laboratory where he will work on stuff, and, um, like the typical, like, genius scientist will get distracted for weeks down there. Um, but he always sh- comes back up and shows his love. And Andre is now ready to show Eileen his new experiment, and he explains this is um, a disintegrator, reintegrator, transporter, and he demonstrates it to her by taking um, a dish that they have that was made in Japan and sending it through. Eileen can't believe her eyes. She's like, "Well, this this should be impossible, but it must be true." And then has a little laugh about made in japan being printed backwards and this prompts andre to be like oh fuck no i fucked up and then like completely focuses on this again some weeks go by and he figures out how to fix this mirroring effect um he puts through it's late at night and he puts through the newspaper and it's perfect And he's like yes i've done it it's ready and then the family cat comes by and meows and he's like I forget the name of their cat.
0: Dandalo. Dandalo wild name.
1: <laughs> He's like Dandalo, you are going to be world famous and he puts Dandalo into the machine. Except Dandalo doesn't materialize and it's really upsetting. <laughs> and you hear these distant meows echoing through the basement. Yeah,
0: disembodied meows
1: that like are along with like the disembodied cat atoms floating through the universe it's I mean I'm the first to admit that I have that cat bias as discussed previous episode but it's I think it would be disturbing for like a normal person as well (laughs) some weeks go by and Andre brings Eileen down and he's like I'm ready to show you look I'm putting a guinea pig through and she's like but you know, animal experimentation is bad. Like we don't do that. And he's like, no, trust me, I've done this already. Puts the guinea pig through. He's fine. And this is when Andre breaks the news about where Dandolo has disappeared to. <laughs> um, and you know, Elaine takes it well. Um, but she's like, okay, but don't use this guinea pig any further. Um, and Andre's like, no, I won't. And if this guinea pig is alive in one month, we'll know that this, whole process is safe. One month later, guinea pig is still alive. It's the healthiest guinea pig ever. André is ready to show this experiment to Francois. So Elaine brings Francois over. She takes him down into the basement to show uh, the full experiment. But there's a note on the door from André saying, like, I'm working. Don't disturb me. And they're like, well, that's weird and disappointing. But you know how he gets. Later that evening, Eileen comes down to check on him because Andre hasn't been seen for, like, the whole day. This is when she starts getting these notes from under the door saying, like, you have to do everything as I say, um, knock three times before you enter, bring me a, a saucer of milk laced with rum, and um, don't look at me when you come inside. So she, she follows this and she enters, and Andre is in the ex- in the lab but he has a hood over his head and his left hand is in his pocket he you know isn't speaking and is only um communicating through these notes um and aline reads this latest note that is both like don't watch me while i eat but also we must catch this white-headed fly i won't explain any further but we must catch this fly Now earlier in the day philippe had caught a fly that had a white head but you know in in her heart of hearts um was like well don't catch flies like let it loose like leave wild things be and she kind of scolded him for it but now they have to catch it so the next day Without really explaining why, Eline brings in their um, maid and Philippe into the fold to catch this fly. And they manage to corner it in the house, Um, but just as they are about to catch it, the fly escapes out the window. Eline breaks that news to Andre, and she's like, don't worry, we'll try again tomorrow. And Andre's like, no, it needs to happen soon, otherwise it's of no use, because I can feel my mind slipping and he's conveying this all through um the notes and the typing. And so he he's at a at a loss and he's in full despair mode because he's like if I don't get this fly I have to destroy myself. And she's like no, you can't destroy yourself like you you have a mind, you have a soul, like that you don't do this. And he's like no, my mind's slipping. There's no other alternative. And so Aline is like okay, but you know when you put the made in japan dish back through it sorted itself out so let's put you through and maybe it'll sort you out because if it's either death or another experiment let's do the experiment
0: yeah i mean like logically speaking it's not going to work because he needs those uh human atoms that are part of that fly now but you know i can understand the desperation of the like well, why don't we just like turn it on and off again and see if that <laughs> sort of fixes everything sort of rationale.
1: So, Andre goes through the machine one last time. And as he emerges, Aline is like, no, see, you, you're you're all better. And she pulls off the hood and sees the full fly head. And it is super cool and has like a moving like sucker face part. Proboscis. Proboscis, whatever. Um, sucker face is right. And this is when we see like the shot of her screaming and then the shot of her screaming again, but seen through compound eyes. Um, and it's really, really cool. So Andre is like so upset about all this completely reasonably Aline faints. So he puts her on a bed and then he starts destroying his notes and the equipment. Um, when Aline comes to, he leads her over to the, factory which is across the street and shows her how to work the hydraulic press she starts to run it and that's when uh there's a little bit of a struggle between her and And on well fly andre um because he's becoming more fly like but eventually the press goes down and crushes his skull but his hand is still out so she has to put the press back up put his hand in and then press it again and it was this the second pressing that caused a lot of what was a driving force of the mystery in the the first half of the murder mystery.
0: Yeah, because it made it clear that like this wasn't some sort of accident if you did it twice.
1: Mm-hmm. So we come back to the present and Sheris tells Francois that, yeah, this confirms that Helene is mad. There's no way that this is real. And Francois's like, no, but like. You, you don't know Andre. Like, this could be possible. Aline's like, well, we can prove it. Just show, share the fly you caught, Francois. And Francois's like, oh, I I lied. And so Aline is going to be taken into an asylum unless Francois can find the fly. Uh, Philippe mentions that he saw it outside, so francois grabs sheris and they run outside and they see that the fly is caught in a web yelling in like a tiny little voice help me and this is when we see the full-on like man fly like in the web it's done very well with like superimposition or whatever matting whatever and this spider's like coming right fucking at it and bites it and eats it and that's when Sheris just like grabs the biggest rock he can find and just smushes it mm-hmm. and he is in shock Francois is in shock at having seen all of this and Francois is like so it was true and if Aline committed murder rather than just destroying a thing then you Sherris just committed murder and Sherris is like I know I know this is fantastical. I can't believe this. She can't go into the asylum because she's not mad. And so they quickly come up with a series of events that would explain Andre's death as a suicide rather than as a murder. And um that resolves the uh the threat of Eileen having to go into the asylum um and uh she can stay. Um and that's the end.
0: Yeah. So the thing I find really crushing about this movie um, that I mentioned earlier is, like, that they need to catch this fly. Mm -hmm. Because, like, catching a fly is really fucking hard. I mean, for me personally, swatting a fly is really hard. So, like, the idea of, like, catching it is even harder. They get really close a couple of times, right? Like, Philippe catches it and then lets it go. And then at one point they, like, basically lure it with sugar and Philippe gets like his net over it and it gets out somehow. Maybe there's like a hole in the net or something. Mm -hmm. And then they sort of catch it between like the window and the curtain, but there's a little hole in the window and it gets out on the other side, out into the garden. And at that point it's like, well, fuck, you know, it's outside and it's just like so upsetting. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was a kid, the parts of this movie I found upsetting. Like there was the, reveal of the fly head and of course like the little help me fly at the end but i really found the hydraulic press thing to be like super super disturbing when i was a kid and this idea that this like to me the central emotional crux of the movie is this idea of this wife who's forced to like crush her husband in a hydraulic press
1: yeah the thing about the hydraulic press is it has this loud mechanical sound and humming and then you hear it come down and then of course like it crushes and then has the, like gas release and it's just very loud and involved and um scary like in the way that a freight train coming by is scary because it's just so loud and dangerous. But it
0: also like takes enough time mm-hmm. that like he has to lie there waiting for it and she has to stand there watching it. And that's just horrific. Mm-hmm. Um one of the things about Andre's transformation is like as you mentioned his mind is going. And so he has these like Dr. Strangelove moments where like his fly hand like goes to do something and he has to like hold it back with the human hand. I think the main reason why that starts happening, this idea that like the fly is taking over is probably like it makes some sense that like his brain atoms are mixed with the flies as well then, right? But I think from a movie making standpoint, it's so that there can be some threat to Helene from the fly because there's this tragedy in this horror of her having to kill her own husband, but like she's not really in danger. And so you, you miss out on that kind of like classic horror movie thrill part of it. Sure. Um, And so by creating the situation where the fly is slowly taking over, it means that he's a threat to her. And that's what creates the final bit of like tension in the movie where he's about to get crushed and she kind of like walks over there. I I think like her intent is just to like hold his hand and kind of like be with him. And you know, before he dies, but the fly hand reaches out to her and is pulling her under the press as it's coming down. And she's like screaming and she has to like get out at the last moment and stuff. And so like that creates that sense this time watching the movie, that moment where the fly gets away, like just devastated me mm-hmm. because that's when all hope is lost. And you had this hope kind of like dangled in front of you. And I guess I just started thinking about like how I would react if something like that happened to you, like not literally the fly part, (laughs) but if it was like a situation where I don't know, like you had a terminal illness or something, but it was like, Oh, there's this chance that she could be saved. Um, but then it was like oh the you know i don't know the ship that the medicine was on got stuck in the suez canal and so it's too late now and she's going to die like
1: well there are stories like that with covid mm. um so alberta like many places has politicized um restrictions And uh, we also have an annual summer festival called the Calgary Stampede. And in summer 2021, our premier um, lifted restrictions so we could have the best summer ever uh, in time for Stampede. And of course, this led to a surge of a COVID wave and inpatients, And there was this woman who was sharing her story on Twitter that she was set to have a surgery that would remove a cancerous tumor. And it got delayed because of, um, the initial COVID wave. And then it got delayed again because of the best summer ever related wave. And now it's terminal and she's going to
0: die from it. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, like this kind of stuff is very upsetting. Absolutely. Um, And I think it's like, I think for me personally, the fact that there's like a way out, but to, to achieve the way out, you have to catch a fly. Mm Mm-hmm. Like every time they're chasing the fly and they like jump on it to grab it or something or it buzzes away like my heart just like jumps in my chest and I think it's really really impressive that a movie can create a situation with its characters and story where I'm like on the edge of my seat about a fly buzzing around you know?
1: Yeah. The sound design is done really well so that like, sometimes you think you hear it, but then it's not really there. And then later in the scene, it shows up and then they try to catch it. it they do a really good job of having that spatial effect. Like it's buzzing yeah. around your head.
0: Um, something I didn't mention in the context setting, cause it's kind of like a minor thing is this movie was originally shown in quadraphonic sound, which means, um, four channel Uh, so, and that's replicated on the Blu-ray now four channel sound was a very like early version of surround sound. It's not fully what we would consider surround sound because it's just forward, left and right, and then rear left and right. So instead of, uh, a modern surround system that has, you know, a center channel and uh, blah, 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 a bunch of other channels. Um, but that ability to have forward and rear left and right speakers is what enables them to create that spatial effect of the fly buzzing around.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think the other way that they were able to have the power of this fly is, um, Patricia Owens is acting.
0: Mm-hmm. She is great.
1: Yeah. The despair she feels when she like can't find the fly outside.
0: She reminds me a little bit of, um, Grace Kelly in Dallin for Murder. Sure. But like, yeah, she is carrying this movie like David Hedison does fine um you know he's lovable as Andre and then he does a great job with his like physical acting when he's like under the fly makeup like with his head twitches and stuff but you know he's fine Vincent Price is okay um but like he's he's a straight man in this one so you don't really get from him the things that you tend to like Mm -hmm. from Vincent Price the kid doesn't really live up to his hype, in my opinion. Like, he's fine, but like... Which,
1: you know, for some child actors, just being fine is fairly good. Yes,
0: he's not terrible, but like, he's not great. Um, but Patricia Owens is great in this movie. She really should have gone on to bigger and better things. It's it's sad that she didn't.
1: Yeah. Also, speaking of um, the f- use of the fly... Uh, at every stage of the movie, there's something about a fly that is causing a sense of tension, mm. whether it's like, oh, no, I, I need to find the fly to um, the fly is causing anxiety in Aline, Um to like <laughs> at one point a fly is buzzing around um, Andre's head when he's outside and you're like, we know that there's something with a fly like what what's going to happen and it's causing dread like at every stage there's something about a fly
0: yeah and i think when you watch the movie it's clear that the title refers to the fly that they're trying to catch not andre yeah um i think that's that's clear when you watch it and it almost turns the fly into like like Andre becomes a monster but he's not the villain mm-hmm. like the fly is the villain like the fly <laughs> is what feels like the antagonist in sure. the story you know the other thing about this movie is like the more you think about it kind of the more horrific and disturbing it gets because there it leaves a lot of questions unanswered like if parts of the fly's mind got into Andre so that he's having this conflict does that mean parts of Andre's mind were in the fly? Well, yeah, he knows how to speak English. Exactly. Like so how much when they kill that fly, like how much of that fly was Andre? Right? Mm-hmm. It's it's real disturbing and it's just something where like, you know, when Charas uh smashes the web with his rock, he's just like he basically says to Francois that like he couldn't really handle that being a thing in the world. Like, he was not ready to deal with the questions of that. He just could not handle that being true. That just needed to get scushed.
1: Yeah, which I think is really interesting because we've had movies in the past, like The Island of Lost Souls, hmm. where that blurring of man and beast occurs. And I don't feel it as viscerally as man and insect. Yeah. But specifically man as the insect yeah and i didn't even feel it this way when we watched um the incredible shrinking man it was the like cross of person into insect that that fucked
0: me up yeah and that like that insignificance but significance at the same time like Mm -hmm. you need to find this tiny little thing um if there's one thing that i would change about this movie i don't really like the epilogue so There's the scene where Charas and Francois talk about like, oh, it could have been suicide. Let's, you know, let's say this is what happened so that she can get off the hook, but we also don't need to sell this fly story to a court kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think the movie should have ended with like them deciding on that and then just kind of like walking away from the park. And maybe we just like pan down to like the smushed fly And the movie should have ended there because that's a happy ending for the characters. But we we leave the audience feeling disturbed. I think the like next scene that's like this very pat little scene where Francois is visiting Helene and Philippe in the garden and they're talking about how they're going to go to the zoo and like is so happy kind of undercuts the movie a bit. I'm not the biggest fan of that scene.
1: What's interesting
0: is Francois
1: in that scene is explaining to Philippe like why his dad died. And Mm -hmm. it's not like, oh, he he went where man it was not meant to go. It was like he was an explorer and pushing the boundaries and he wasn't careful enough.
0: Yeah, he he made a mistake. Right. Yeah, he was he got careless. And that's interesting. It's because in every
1: other case, it's been like, well, he was mad.
0: Yeah, it, it doesn't shit on science yeah so much as some of the other mad scientist movies philippe even says like i want to grow up and be an explorer like my dad too um which nowadays i would have taken that for ah setting up the sequel which is what it's doing um but they didn't know they were gonna make a sequel when they made this one so it's not explicitly uh, a sequel setup but like if there was ever a movie where i believed the like you fucked with things man is not meant to know Line, it's kind of this one because a lot of the other times it's like, eh, Did you though? <laughs> yeah, but did he though hear? Because when they're
1: explaining the transporter technology, he uses the example of like television mm-hmm. or radio where like these invisible rays are traveling through the air to your set and you get to see Lucille Ball on the screen. Yeah, and Eileen tries to be like, But that's not the same because this is physical. And he's like, yeah, but it's just the next step.
0: Yeah. And he like the script. So the script is really smart Mm -hmm. um, and it has a lot of good like believability to it. uh, Way more than a lot of these other movies, Um, which is not to say that like there weren't sci-fi movies with good science in them in the 50s. They were just like super rare. And we haven't really been seeing them in the like mad scientist genre. Right. But like, you know, Andre explains that there is no difference between matter and you know, electrical impulses, like your television signal is made of electrons, matter is made of like atoms, like this feels solid to you, but it's just like a cloud of little particles buzzing around each other. And, you know, this idea that ultimately the big theoretical core of like nuclear technology is the idea that we can convert matter to energy. And so like this idea that like, okay, well, if we can do that, can we convert energy to matter Mm -hmm. and can we convert them back and forth like starts to become like a a logical next step and andre like presents his case really well and he talks about like we could use this to send food back and forth from places you know send people all around uh this would end like you know scarcity scarcity in war and all these things and you realize like Oh, this is Star Trek. Because <laughs> what he's inventing is literally the Star Trek transporter. And that's
1: And the replicator. Yes,
0: because that's how the Star Trek Utopia works. The Star Trek Utopia works on turning matter to energy because it solves scarcity. You can send people everywhere. You disconnect like the spaces between people. Yeah, he's describing like the Star Trek future mm-hmm. as he's pitching the device. And I find that really interesting because it's 1958. And Star Trek, the first episode is not produced until 1964. And, like, for how many people was this movie the first time they ever thought about these kind of, like, subatomic ideas? Yeah. Right? As being possibilities. Like, I think one of the things that's really interesting, if you watch genre pictures um in chronological order uh, and we've talked on this a few times is like when you run into the first movie that addresses a certain thing and they have to stop and explain it to you and you think to like nowadays when like a marvel movie can just be like this is the quantum realm and whatever and they don't bat an eyelash at explaining it to the audience
1: yeah for sure um i think what's also really interesting with the fly is Eileen is given an opportunity to be like, yeah, but progress is scary. Like, yes, I'm not afraid of, like, electricity or my phone or the radio, but, like, everything is happening so fast. Like, are we ready for this? Mm -hmm. Because that is, like, a completely fair concern. Mm -hmm. Um, I think of my grandmother who saw, like, the invention of the telephone and lived until, you know, NFTs were a thing. Like, just the rate of like inventions yeah um it it can be scary because it feels so chaotic because it's out of your control
0: yeah absolutely but i really like that the movie lets andre reply to that Mm -hmm. in reasonable ways yeah like so we don't have helene as like a like you know god didn't mean for man to know things but she's not a luddite but we also don't have andre as someone who's like science is good because it's science science is, is, is its own highest truth and calling and uh, like has its own morality. Like he has actual rational responses, which are the kind of rational responses that like you will hear from someone who is like technologically like, like a technophile about inventions and stuff where it's like, well, you're not afraid of TV. So why are you afraid of this other thing kind Mm -hmm. of stuff? Um, The script is really, really smart. Um, It has a kind of, like, not just believability to the science fiction stuff, but, like, a realism to it in that, like, this might be the most realistic basement lab we've ever seen. She goes down into their basement. There's, like, a furnace and a boiler and shit. And then there's, like, a sliding door. Not, like, a secret passage, just, like, a sliding door. And then you go into what is clearly, like... Unfinished storage area basement and he's got all of his equipment set up in it in a couple of rooms there's like one of the rooms has like you can see a fireplace in the background of it that he's just set a bunch of equipment up in front of this is not the thing where like you watch one of these movies and you're like why does this guy have a secret spinning bookcase that leads down like a circular stone stairway into like a dungeon filled with strict equipment like what Um,
1: yeah also no strict fade in equipment here but it's all like uh flashing lights and neon lights yes
0: because we're in color yes neon tubes not as exciting in black and white
1: um but it's very cool and what i personally appreciated is when the machine is warming up and is ready to Mm. transport it has a little like microwave ding (laughs) i'm ready
0: (laughs) but like so speaking of the flashing lights that's something else that's worth pointing out mm-hmm. like he's got these big metal banks of like cabinets of like these like flashing light patterns and big tape reels And if you are a computer, right, exactly, exactly. Like if you're younger, you won't get what that's supposed to be. But that is a computer. He has computers in his lab. And I think that's like really important to point to, you know, that he has that instead of a bunch of Tesla coils and Bunsen burners. Yeah, it all looks really realistic. This looks like real stuff. The other thing here that I really appreciated in terms of realism, this is the best explanation we've gotten for like a scientist's money and access to equipment since... Baron Frankenstein is a nobleman. Yeah. Because it's like, yeah, he's basically like, he's a Tony Stark kind of type to use a modern example. (laughs) Like he runs his own electronics company and it's the mid fifties in the middle of the electronics boom. So they have a ton of money. Their house is a big like mansion. It's not a spooky castle. It's a mansion in Montreal. And so he has access to all this equipment because like the factory's next door, like he doesn't have the hydraulic press in his basement. They go to the factory next door. And how does he get all this equipment and where does this funding come from? He's rich. He has the ability to like mess around. And they also mentioned that like, he might be doing this on contract for like the air ministry is what they call it, which I don't think is what we actually have in Canada, but yeah, it's just like way more believable Absolutely.
1: I will say. So, yes, the Technicolor adds like an exciting element with the neon lights. Unfortunately, the Technicolor means that everything is like really brightly lit. Mm. And so there are times where it doesn't quite feel like horror because of it. Um, But it also adds like this really interesting thing where, you know, Uh, We'll say in the in the house, it's brightly lit. um, They're a loving family. And then you go into the basement and it's like this underbelly of like this darker tone. Uh, And they use like blues and shadows and stuff. But it just like causes a little bit of a a shift like we're in the underbelly. Yeah. And um, this this might just be this might just be my my academic stuff coming out. But are you ready for this? Okay, yeah, shoot me with the hot take. Artificiality. Okay. So let me let me describe the setting here a little bit. We have this house. It's across the street from the factory. And yet when we go outside uh, in their yard, they kind of describe it like a park, but it's clearly privately maintained because it's like impeccable. Grass is cleanly cut. Trees are trimmed. Uh, and even in the scene where... It looks like they're in their backyard. It almost looks like astroturf. Mm. In that scene in the backyard, Andre is like, oh, it's spring is coming. I love spring, the renewal, etc." And yet like they're talking about it as if they aren't just completely covered with like flowers and leaves around them, which gives this feeling of like, well, are those real flowers and grass or is that just like astroturf? Or artificial things, because the level of greenery here should not be the level of like we're just entering spring.
0: Sure, sure, I see what you're saying. Especially in like Montreal, um, <laughs> so, I think that ambiguity is also enhanced by the fact that I think the particular scene you are mentioning is shot on a soundstage. Yes. Some of the other stuff in there, like estate park, think I think are actually outside, but I think that scene was on a set.
1: So it just creates this really interesting feeling of like an artificial home. Mm. And when you think about like the way that they are talking about the the man was not meant to know Mm. thing and talking about progress and knowledge, it's almost this. Okay, so this is where I'm like, this is the academic hot take. Sure. Um, His cross-contamination with a fly is almost like his fall from an artificial Eden. Okay. And this... Artificial Eden is like rotting from the inside, as seen with like the amount of flies they have all around them. Like oh, the yeah. amount of flies that are in this house that they like go to catch and it's not the white-headed one. I know it's just supposed to like raise the tension. Yeah. But where are all these flies coming from?
0: Yeah, that is definitely a valid like question.
1: <laughs> Vincent Price goes or sorry, Francois goes walking and he passes like a garbage can um and he like inspects it to see if there's a white-headed fly but it's also just like overflowing with garbage with a shit ton of flies mm-hmm. like it, it and he kind of goes down like the back alley so it's like this hidden grotesque garbage mm. hidden from the artificial paradise of their house
0: okay sure
1: um so that that's just a lot of what i was thinking about this fall from an artificial eden um and part of that was also the way that like the grotesque, horrific part of the man flying being eaten by the spider Mm. and the way that that was so viscerally affecting to me. Um, I mentioned this before, like I found that more horrific than the like ape men that we saw in Island of Lost Souls. So I started thinking like, why was that so much more visceral to me than I I guess like bestiality, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And it was like trying to think about like, You know, that demarcation of human versus like wilderness, I'll Mm. say, to kind of incorporate insect life into it um, was blurred. And it wasn't so much like it was almost like an undercutting of um, that fear of man's mastery and the fear of brutality of the wilderness of that spider just completely
0: demolishing the dude. Sure. And I think that ties in with things about the 1950s as being this like the 1950s had this attitude to it that was sort of present at the time and is also like really present in our memory of it Um, that I always like to push back on because I think people remember the 1950s as if it was really like Leave It to Beaver um, and it wasn't, but there was this attitude that like we had reached this apex, mm-hmm. that like we had conquered the atom, that like man had demonstrated, that like the theory that nature was a thing that God gave us for us to overcome that like things in nature existed as tools for man right that like hemp exists so that man can make rope out of it kind of argument yeah um,
1: versus um the other argument of like well we're supposed to be shepherds to
0: it right which is
1: kind of seen in Eline with her being like you know we should be taking care of the skinny pig we shouldn't be using like flies for experiments or anything it's
0: interesting the way that she is clearly like a religious character and like they're they're Family is clearly a religious family, but they talk about it without really, like, invoking words like sin and and things like that. Like, they don't talk about religious stuff, mm-hmm. um, which is probably, like, a scripting choice to avoid, like... The code. Yeah, and, like, pinning them to one religion or another. But they're clearly religious people. Or, you know, the other contrasting view is, like, the atheist perspective of, like, man is just an animal. Like, we're just one of many animals on this planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's nothing special about us. I think when thinking about, like, why the fly cross is so much more viscerally upsetting to you than, like, the beast crosses, my brain comes up with two explanations. One is that we have a tendency to anthropomorphize certain animals more than others. Like, we kind of pretend that our cats and dogs are just little people. We're like, ooh, I put little booties on him, and he's mommy's baby, and, like... (laughs) Send him to school and he's going to have a diploma and like, (laughs) you know, um, and we pretend like they're people. We don't really do that with insects. Like even if someone has like a pet spider, they don't anthropomorphize it in the same way where it's like, Oh, see, he's sad. And like, whatever. There's this line that we cross where we're aware that things are much less human and cannot really be ascribed, like, human characteristics. So I think there's, that's one thing, and, and insects are on that side of the line. The other thing is that I think man-beast crosses have been normalized by ultimately Disney and, like, the creation oh, sure. of, like, anthropomorphic animal characters. I say ultimately Disney because the reason why it's, like, super normalized and isn't just confined to, like those characters is the way that that influence you know expanded out into like furry animal genre being like a standard genre for cartoons and then like for all kinds of media to the point where like we have you know a whole like furry porn subculture that sort of makes all of that stuff seem like way less threatening like it's way less of a like oh this is a sin against nature but like the insect thing (laughs) Is not normalized in that same way. That's very true. And even when cartoons do anthropomorphize, like insects, like bumblebees and things, they very much completely redesign them to not look anything like a fucking insect. Like the yeah,
1: like uh, Jerry Seinfeld in a Bee Movie. <laughs> right, or like you
0: know the Honey Nut Cheerios bee, who's just like a bald guy in a t-shirt with wings. Yeah, or um, a Bug's Life. Right, exactly. Like it's very, very, very toned down from what insects actually look like. True.
1: Yeah, I can't think of any Well, okay, I'm thinking of um Honey I Shrunk the Kids, because I make friends with an ant who protects them from a scorpion.
0: Sure, but that's not an anthropomorphized ant. Yeah, you but
1: know. they like anthropomorphize because she protects them,
0: right? Sure. They are sure. Anthropomorphizing I guess he's her. not like a walking, talking ant, is yeah. what I'm trying to say, right? Sure, sure sure. Like if you look at like um the dog in All Dogs Go to Heaven right? Like they give him like bigger eyes mm-hmm. to be more expressive. His
1: friend has a hat.
0: Right. But the shape of his face is still like a dog's face. He has yeah. like a snout and shit. Nobody gives anthropomorphized like bees, like weird eyes and proboscis faces. And like, you know what I mean? Like sure. they give them just straight up human faces. Rarely even do anthropomorphized insects get like six legs. They It's normally just like a average human set kind of thing right
1: well to be fair that's because animation is hard
0: yeah i'm just trying to bring up the idea that like man insect cross still feels grody to us in a way that like man dog cross does not anymore you brought up like how the movie's very brightly lit uh, in the Technicolor. I did want to say that I think the use of Technicolor is entirely justified, if only so that we can have the iridescent fly eyes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think they even use the color in very interesting ways for costume design. Mm-hmm. And they do, you know, it's not just because it's an A picture, like they are using it for a purpose.
0: Yeah. The movie's very well designed. Um, I will say in regards to like everything being brightly lit and this movie being like, concerned with tracking down a fly and stuff this might not be like a very scary movie this movie doesn't have a lot of like scares there are a couple for sure that the movie like really amps up um but for the most part while it's not scary this is horrific yes it is very very horrific disturbing yes um despite not being like a movie that's gonna make you maybe scream or jump in your seat it's it's evoking not terror from you, but horror. Yes. Um, And I think the impressive thing about it is the way that it really manages to get you emotionally invested in its characters. We've seen Roger Corman and these other filmmakers trying to create more like emotionally complex characters in these movies. But they come off a lot of the times like... A soap
1: opera that a horror movie wanders into. Right. Where
0: it's like, who are you people? (laughs) Um, This movie created like a husband and wife who we liked, who liked each other. So it was like a tragedy when all of this happens to them. Like you're really upset by it um, because they're this, this family's like (laughs) woof. And I just wanted to say that, that like the movie is definitely horror for sure. Um,
1: and it's interesting comparing this to like, um, the incredible shrinking man, right. which we identified as not being horror. Um, and it's because of the emphasis on like Helene's experience of it, Francois and Cheris's experience of the man fly,
0: yeah, we identified, I think, in Incredible Shrinking Man that it was the point of view that was the problem there, that if it had been from the wife's point of view, it would have been maybe more horrific, right? Yeah, because and- otherwise
1: it comes off as too much of a, like an adventure movie.
0: Right, and so that's really what we have here. It's the wife's point of view.
1: So let's move on to ranking.
0: Okay, Sarah, I just have a spot picked out.
1: Oh, well, I have a small range, okay. so let me tell you it. Um, I... I found this movie hard to rank um, because there's not really anything I could like directly compare it to. For sure. Like the incredible shrinking man uh, recovered. It's not on the list. So the next movie that came to mind to directly compare this to is um, Island of Lost Souls, which is currently ranked at number nine. Ultimately at this point when comparing The Technicolor played against The Fly um, because of the way that you really feel drenched in shadow and the starkness um, in Island of Lost Souls. Um, I I felt that it was a better horror movie, especially because it doesn't have that denouement. It's just like these guys being fucked up on a boat um, versus The Fly's ending of let's go to the zoo.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's definitely, you know, some pre-code versus code era stuff.
1: Absolutely. So I started working my way down from number nine, um, and I settled at um, number 17, La Diabolique, because it has a murder mystery at its core, and I thought it was really interesting how The Fly had the murder mystery at the beginning and then went into the full horror movie. Um, So I made La Diabolique my ceiling, but I knew that I could not go below Macabre at 22, Um, because the horror, just the the visceral feeling of horror that um, is in The Fly is so much more powerful than what is in Macabre. So my range was 17 to 22.
0: Okay. Um, My pick for a spot is not in your range. Oh, what Um, were you thinking? It is higher. Okay. What were you thinking? So my thing here was how emotionally affected I was by the movie And so, as you said, it's hard to compare it to things, Um, particularly other mad scientists like your science went wrong on you stuff, because most of those movies, I don't give one shit about the characters or another. (laughs) And that was sort of my thing comparing it to Island of Lost Souls as well. Lost Souls is a very like dark, grim, disturbing picture, but also I don't give a fuck about anybody in it. Like if Buddy makes it off the island at the end or not, it's like if he makes it off, it's like cool, that was exciting. And if he doesn't, it's like, well, that was a dark ending.
1: Yeah, he he is Mr. Bland. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't
0: care about his girlfriend. I don't care about that captain who comes and rescues them. Um, You know, you care about Moreau only in the sense that you want to see him get his just desserts, which he does. Um, Moreau's like weird alcoholic doctor friend. I don't even remember what happens to him. Like, it doesn't matter. mm -hmm. And in this movie, I'm really invested and wrapped up in people. So I was looking for what are the movies on the list where I really care about the people and what happens to the people and I'm invested in them as characters. And that means above horror of Dracula because horror of Dracula is a great fucking movie. But like, honestly, I don't care about any of those people. (laughs) Um, So that's the top four. Yeah. And looking at that top four, um, I can't put the fly above Gojira. That's just like not a thing I can do. So I was willing to think, well, maybe it could go above Spiral Staircase. So my spot was number four. That was what I was looking at.
1: Okay. So to replace the Spiral Staircase. You know, I think that that is very fair. Um, I'm thinking of the moments of like tension and terror and horror in Spiral Staircase. And it does those really well. Mm -hmm. Um, And I definitely feel like tense and on the edge of my seat. And I think it's really interesting that the f- similar sitting on the edge of my seat scenes that the scenes in the fly that would cause a similar feeling of sitting on the edge of my seat would be when they're trying to catch a fly. Right. Um, and just like it's just interesting to think like the scenes are very different, but they're causing a similar feeling. Um, and, and
0: as I said earlier, for me, it's really impressive yeah. that they're able to get the same level of tension out of trying to catch a fly in a living room.
1: You know, actually, I'm kind of okay with this because the spiral staircase is really good and this doesn't like undercut it, but it ends with Ethel Barrymore coming out with a gun. Yeah. Right. To like shoot the dude, which is cool, which is super cool, but not um, we have to quickly come up with an explanation that leads to suicide instead of the existence of a man fly.
0: Yeah. Like the happy ending of this movie is that we had to like. Come up with a satisfactory lie. Right? It's like it's like the ending of the Dark Knight, you know? Where like Gordon and Batman were like, let's just never speak of this ever again. Yeah, no, cool. I'm into this. Oh, okay. I was gonna look at like trying to figure out what the you know the mid-range point was and work up and down, but if you're just gonna agree with me, I'm just gonna take it.
1: Yeah, here it is on a silver platter.
0: Okay, awesome. So entering the list at the new number four is The Fly, from 1958, directed by Kurt Newman.
1: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene
0: scream scene updates every wednesday on apple podcasts google podcasts soundcloud and spotify you can subscribe to the show using our rss feed and you can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review share the show with your friends on social media or just around the DD table um, and let them know what a cool show it is word of mouth is the best way for us to grow our audience if you have the means we also would appreciate it if you head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast just like patron of the night Raphael moreau if you join up like Raphael, you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month though patrons at the five and ten dollar levels get access to regular bonus content so for all that and more including the poll for our monthly horror adjacent bonus episodes head on over to patreon.com slash ScreamScenePodcast.
1: Well, actually, because of the day that we are recording this, the poll has ended. The movie that we will be watching for February's horror-adjacent movie is Buster Keaton's The Haunted House. Fun! So,
0: keep your eyes out for that on the last Saturday of the month. And if you would like to be part of those votes each and every month, head on over to patreon.com slash ScreamScenePodcast.
1: So what are we watching next week, Ben?
0: Well, Sarah, next week, Boris Karloff returns to the series that made him famous, kind of, sort of, as he plays Dr. Frankenstein (laughs) in Frankenstein 1970. (laughs) But it's from 1958. Yes. Okay. awesome. Set in the far off future of 1970. Amazing. With Karloff as dr frankenstein not the monster yeah well clearly yeah amazing i'm super excited awesome okay we'll see you next week creatures of the night bye bye